Good morning to each of you. It's good to be together on this glorious Lord's Day. A little bit of a warm day, but it's nice to be able to worship together. We had a blessed time in our prayer meeting earlier. We prayed for many of you who were not there. So know that you are being prayed for not only through the week by your pastors and by the members, but also as a church. Well, this is our second installment in a mini-series called Being a Living Sacrifice, taking a break from our expositions in the book of Hebrews. And so we find ourselves in Romans chapter 12. We'll, over four weeks, go through that entire chapter. And today is verses 3 to 8 if you want to find your place there. Last week, we considered the first two verses, very well-known verses. Many of you have memorized these. Therefore, I urge you by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. A very important and practical conclusion to 11 chapters of rich doctrine of what it means for us to be in Christ, to be justified by faith, to be sanctified. And and now the application in light of all of this glorious exposition comes the exhortation. Offer yourself a living sacrifice. Every part of your body, your mind, your ear, your eye, your mouth, every part of your body is to glorify Him. And the motivation as we see, is not fear of punishment, fear of hell, or to impress others, but it's because of God's great mercy. That's the motivation. And he says here, uh, it's your spiritual service of worship. In other words, it's your reasonable service. But then he gives the caution, two imperatives, two commands, you'll remember from last week, do not be conformed to this world. So it's an imperative with the negative Do not be conformed, pressed into its mold, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's like the cookie cutter, the jello former, you know, that that you shape things. You don't be conformed to that, but rather you're transformed by the renewing of your mind. Well, let's uh, go ahead and read. I'll reread verses 1 to 8. Romans 12. Therefore, I urge you by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. You want to know the will of God? Run it through that grid right there, right? Is it good? Is it acceptable? Is it perfect or a complete type of end? Verse 3. But through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body of Christ and individual members of it. 
since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to each of us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. If service, in his serving. Or he who teaches, in his teaching. Or he who exhorts in his exhortations. He who gives with all liberality. He who leads with all diligence. And he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. To ask God's help. Father, indeed, we could not even focus on one thing more than 10 seconds were it not for your assistance and help, and how much more for 40 minutes or so. So, Lord, help us to set aside distractions and cares and noises and to learn what you would have of us as we are called to serve you and each other with humility. And Lord, we know that pride is such a cancer and yet it is so prevalent in our society. Teach us what it means to be humble, and especially in the context of the church, as we would use that charisma, the charismata, the the gifts within us that you have given because of the grace of God that we've been saved by. So Lord, we pray your blessing now upon this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Discovering and using our spiritual gifts is a fascinating endeavor. Verses 1 and 2 applies to all of us, doesn't it? I've already reread it. Uh, We all are to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. It's our reasonable response, our, our reasonable service. Man is created in the image of God, and yet man has fallen, and so many men are They have deceived hearts. They never get saved. But for those of us that are in Christ, we've been redeemed by Christ. We're yet a very diverse people, but we have this one thing in common, that every child of God has been saved by grace alone. Every child of God has the Holy Spirit now dwelling on the inside. Every child of God has new passions and desires to seek to glorify the God who has saved them. Each one of us is to be active in God's kingdom, but mark it well, we have different gifts. We have different abilities. God God has made us all very unique. Even identical twins have differences. You know that, right? They have different personalities and strengths and weaknesses. But each child of God has a spiritual gift to be used for God, to glorify God him to uh, be a means unto the edification of the church edification the word has the idea of the building up it's the building up of the stature it's making it strong god has designed local assemblies local churches if you will to carry out his mission in this world the church itself provides pastoral oversight and administers the ordinances of God, of which we have the Lord's Supper later in this service. But that framework provides the context for every member to use their spiritual gifts unto God. You see, there's no such thing as solo Christianity. What do you use your spiritual gifts on that mountaintop to edify yourself? Do you stand in front of the mirror and exhort yourself over it? That's folly, right? Solo Christianity is completely 
foreign to the Holy Scriptures. We need each other. And as we would flourish and use our gifts, we do that in the context of the local church. But the local church has come under attack, hasn't it? Um, you know, this whole new wave of, uh, I, you know, internet, in the last 10 years or so, internet baptisms, internet communion, YouTube, even COVID, right? There's still churches that are not meeting in person. They're still live streaming. I saw, I watched a little clip, uh, someone that used to go to this church, a little clip just to, to kind of feel out this church, and, um, and they're still doing online. Can you believe that? After, it's been about a year and a half now. So let's look at this today. Three simple points. Give yourself a sober self-assessment. This is very, very important, right? If we're talking about discovering and using our gifts, a sober self-assessment, that's verse 3. Verses 4 and 5, there's a diversity of gifts in the unity of the body of Christ. And our third point is verses 6 to 8, exercise your spiritual gifts in an orderly fashion. So first of all, let's look at this verse 3. It reads clunky in most English translations, and that's because the verse is clunky. It's a play on words. I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. But I want you to see here the basis of this admonition, the essence of this admonition, and the reason for this admonition. And it's very, very important. It's very connected to verses 1 and 2, and it connects to verse 4. The basis of this admonition, Paul warns against the sin of exaggerated self-esteem. Now, in the last 30 years or so, we've heard a lot about self-esteem, right? There's a self-esteem gospel, you know? You just got to think better of yourself. Come on, you guys, right? The self-esteem gospel. But Paul is warning against having an exaggerated self-esteem, the basis of this admonition is, look at what he, how he begins it. For through the grace given to me. Okay? So it's a recognition that the grace that God has given to me, he says, I say, this is apostolic authority, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly than he ought. He appeals to the authority given to him as an apostle, and and he says to everyone without exception. That's the basis of the admonition. The essence of it is that this is an exhortation to humility. Each gift of which he will go on to list here shortly comes to us only by the grace of God. The sin of pride has us coveting and seeking to exalt ourselves and to puff ourselves up. Did you know God detests pride? He hates it. What was the great sin of Lucifer, Satan? We all know what it is, right? It was pride. And he's cast out of heaven, and that's why in Proverbs it says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. One contemporary author said this, Pride is when sinful human beings aspire to the status and position of God and refuse to acknowledge their dependence upon Him. Now, you say, come on. That's not, I, don't, I haven't met that many people that are aspiring to be God. 
But do you see what this author is saying? Is that you, in essence, by your pride, you're pushing God out. You're ignoring your utter dependence upon Him, which essentially is making you your own deity. Jonathan Edwards, with more vivid language, um, the worst viper that is in the heart is what he calls pride. He goes on to say, the greatest disturber of the soul's peace and sweet communion with Christ. The greatest disturber. The greatest hindrance that's going to keep you from having communion with God is allowing this pride to reign in your heart. And so it must be gotten rid of. It must be mortified. There must be a place for the cultivation of true biblical humility. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Paul says to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance to one another in love, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We're to walk in a manner worthy of God. And that what does that look like? It looks like humility and gentleness. And so, the exhortation here is to not overestimate your gifts. You know, we sometimes have visitors that will come. They might visit three times. Oh, did you know I have the gift of teaching? Do you have any Sunday school slots available? I'd like to, you know, God wants me to use my gift. And well, you might want to let others discern if you really have that gift. And to not put yourself so forward. So he says, Through the grace of God given to me, I say to everyone not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. So don't overestimate your abilities and your gifts. But at the same time, don't underestimate your gifts and abilities. Because that but, in the middle of the verse there, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Don't underestimate. If we do, as John Murray has said, we are refusing to acknowledge God's grace and we fail to exercise that which God has dispensed for his own sanctification and that of others. So if we're underestimating, we're refusing to acknowledge that it is God's grace that has been filled in us and he has given us gifts. Now, there is a play on words in this verse. As I, as I said, the same Greek word occurs positive and negatively four times. It's translated differently um, with these verses. But if you look here, not to think more highly than he ought to think, but to think is having sound judgment. Those are the four words there. And then God has allotted each. One um, grammarian, actually, uh, from the 1900s, paraphrases this verse like this. Not to be high-minded above that which he ought to be minded, but to be so minded as to be sober-minded. That's the play on words. That's, that's the uh, idea there. So negatively, don't be high-minded about yourself. We naturally can tend to do this. And I mean, from the youngest of children, right, it doesn't take them long to learn what? 
me, mine, right? Selfishness and pride and to think more highly of themselves. But positively, appraise your gifts with sober judgment on your knees before God. Let others recognize your gifts and come to you and bring encouragement to you. To think soberly is the idea to be in one's right mind, in other words. It's to be, is this term, level-headed, right? Not erratic and all over the place. That's the idea here. To keep the proper measure, but not going beyond the boundaries. It's the word that is used in Mark chapter 5. You'll remember the demoniac, and Jesus comes and heals him. And, and at the end, it says they came to Jesus and observed the man, the demoniac, who was cutting himself and raging, had been demon-possessed, sitting down and clothed and in his right mind, right? There's a removal of the demons and there's a restoration of a right mind. Also, in the Greek, the dea occurs here where it is necessary, absolutely necessary, that we, as God's children, as we have this sober self-assessment, that we have this level-headedness to be sober-minded. Once we understand the nature of grace and that our salvation is not based upon anything within us, how then can we remain proud and think of ourselves more highly than we thought? Paul is telling us not to think more highly than we ought, but also not to think too low as we ought. And so there's this balance. And so the reason for this admonition is right at the end of the verse. As God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Now, I've, seen, I've heard this verse taken out of context, you know, maybe at big event, or, uh, stadium crusades, and God's given everyone a measure of faith. And it's, it's not talking about the, you know, the potentiality of saving faith. That's not what this is talking about about it all it means that it has been apportioned or allotted in this context to every single christian who has received grace a parallel passage is first peter 4 each one has received a special gift employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of god whoever speaks is to do so as one who are speaking the very utterances of god whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength that God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever. This measure of faith is not the potentiality of saving faith, as I've said. It's not speaking of justifying faith. It's not speaking of those types of things. It's actually the portion of carminata, that is giftedness, that is the result of saving faith. Everyone that's saved by faith is given a portion of faith uh, in their giftedness. And so it's a bit subjective. So think of it not as quantitative, like you have large faith and he's got small faith. It's not so much that. It's the idea of the various ways which each believer is able to be a blessing unto others in the context of the local church in accordance to the faith given to you as God has gifted each and every one. 
So you can see the connection here. Pour yourself as a living sacrifice. What's the motive? God's incredible mercy upon us. That Remember, chapter 1 and 2, we're dead in sin. We're completely foreign. We're, we're objects of his wrath, and yet he justifies us by faith. And so the application is, is live your life as a living sacrifice unto God. But then the context of the church comes in. And so verse 3 kind of connects it that, wait, we have a role. We have a giftedness. God has given us something to do, not just to receive justifying faith, right? That we are called to serve. And so verse 3 is very important, that sober self-assessment. Secondly, verses 4 and 5, there's a diversity of gifts in the unity of the body. And Paul here paints a beautiful picture as he does in other passages and it's it's a beautiful picture in verse four just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function so we who are many are one body in christ and individual members of one another Paul uses this language also later in 1 Corinthians 12. I'll just read this extended passage, beginning in verse 20. But now there are many members, but one body. Remember this analogy. For the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. And again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you, right? On the contrary, it is much much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary and those members of the body which we deem less honorable on these we bestow more abundant honor and our less presentable members become much more presentable whereas our more presentable members have no need of it but god has so composed the body giving more abundant honor to the member which lacked, so that there may be no division of the body, but that the members may have the same care one for another. And if one member suffers, all members suffer with it. And one member is honored, all members rejoice because of it. And he goes on to say, now you are Christ's body and individual members of it. And then he lists the, the spiritual gifts in the later part of that chapter there. So Paul is introducing this, this analogy that we're many members, but we're one body. You see the emphasis on unity there, right? That we're one body. And then even though we're one body, we are individual members to serve one another. Paul wrote the book of Ephesians uh, several years later, and he develops it really in chapter 1, several times in chapter 4, just reading one passage here in 416 from the whole body notice the language being fitted together and held together by that which every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body and the building up of itself in love now it's hard not to just want to camp on that verse and, and, and drive that home, but you see the emphasis here. This is something that he develops throughout the New Testament epistles. Whole body, fitted together. We build itself up in love, edification. And so your bodies, the many members of your body, each have a different function. 
And that's the idea here, that we all have a different role, right? The foot, the eye, the ear, the, you know, all of that, to use the First Corinthians language, we all have a different function. And it's not a function that we take, what is that, that wheel where you spend, wheel of fortune, right? And you see, what spiritual gift am I going to get? Oh, janitor, cleaning the bathrooms. Ah, preacher, okay, whatever. No, it's not like that at all, but God gifts us, and it's by his grace that he empowers us. And it really just, these passages, as you take them one by one and put them together, it just communicates a glorious spiritual reality of the unity and the wholeness of the local church. There's distinct diversity, and we should encourage that. We want that, but that there's sweet unity with true love. That will be next week's sermon. Let love be without hypocrisy, and we'll get to that next week. So now let's look. We're going to spend most of our time here in verses 6 to 8. Having had that sober self-assessment, having recognized that there's diversity in many members in the body, see what he says now. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, what that is, is we do have gifts that differ according to the grace, right? He, he, he sets that forth, forth and he says each of us is to exercise them accordingly. Accordingly. Our gifts differ from one another, and, and there's no particular order here of what he lists. He, what, what he lists here is not what church officers should do, elders and deacons only, right? It's not that at all. Many gifts require no office at all, and Paul lists seven in this passage, in these verses. And, and there's dip, none of the, the gifted passages are identical, right? In fact, if you look on the back of the last song sheet, I put a list of the spiritual gifts in Paul's letters. And here's the four passages. Actually, I would add one, 1 Peter 4. But you have in Romans, you can see where prophecy and teaching, and you can see where there's overlap, where there's commonality, uh, prophecy being the one that occurs in all four lists there. Anyway, that's there for your, for your reference later. But, but there's no, it's not a bunch of identical lists. And that speaks and points, I think, to the diversity of giftedness that God has given us. The word here is charisma, which is the same root as charis. Charis, where you get charissa from, uh, and uh, which means grace, right? So charise, and then the charisma. And so it's important to understand how those are connected. Um, Thayer says in his lexicon, extraordinary powers distinguish certain Christians and enabling them to serve the church of Christ, the reception of which is due to the power of divine grace operating in the souls by the Holy Spirit. So as we have received grace, now we are those who can receive the giftedness, right? The charisma, as it were, the gifts that God has given to us. Listen to one other commentator, James Dunn. He says it's particularly evident here in verse 6 that the character of the charisma, that is the gift, of the embodiment, the concrete manifestation and word and action of charis, that is grace, and here it is. The essential balance between the two words is maintained if we see grace as the resource which comes to particular expression in the gift, which is the fountainhead from which 
the particular draft and more regular stream is drawn. Therefore, it is evident here that Paul is not limiting these gifts to church officers. There are some churches that actually don't want anyone to serve. They just want the officers to do everything, and they, they do very little. Um, John Piper has said, gifts are the expressions or the extensions of grace. Gifts transmit God's grace through the human means to other people for the strengthening and faith and hope and love and healing and guidance. So, how does he say it here? He's given gifts according to the grace given to us. Uh, and, and so, it's, it's, it's proportion. It's, it's according to the proportion of the faith that has a subjective meaning here. So, the list here in Romans, as I said, is not exhaustive. And um, what we want to do is maybe just split these up, these seven up, into just two categories. Speaking gifts, and then serving gifts. And he doesn't even go exactly in that order. It's mostly in that order. So let's, let's consider this. Let's consider the speaking gifts. And he says here in verse 6, if prophecy according to the proportion of faith. Now, it might help us to discuss this a little bit. I don't know how many prophets you've known, and uh, maybe you met some at Balboa Park that's seeking to foretell what's coming and Jesus is coming back and you know um, you know on this date and all of this kind of stuff prophecy is vital because of its comprehensive content it's not restricted to just predicting events most of the minor prophets did what they just declared God's holiness his truth and exposed the sin of the people and that judgment was coming. There was not any particular day in most cases. And so the use of the word prophet in the Old and New Testament are similar. Really, you have two different, two different things. Foretelling. Now, how much of that do you see even in the Bible? You know, Elijah says, it will not rain to King Ahab for three and a half years. That's foretelling, right? That's foretelling, rather. That's foretelling. It's predicting something. And as you, as you look through the scriptures, you don't see a whole lot of that. You do see some, but then there's foretelling, which is declaration of the truth, which is really what the apostles did. The Puritans, like in preaching of the word, like this, to a type of prophecy, um, declaring the truth from the word of God. And the role of most prophets was to declare the truth of who God is the need to repent, the need to get right with him, and the promise of coming judgment. John Calvin said he is referring to ordinary gifts which remain perpetually perpetually in the church. So when he says prophecy here, it's not as though he's expecting the New Testament church to have a bunch of people that will foretell something, right? It's the assumption, even in Calvin's day, 500 years ago, that these are the ordinary gifts, right, expected to exist in perpetuity in the local church. This would mean that prophecy, as it occurs here and in the other gifted, the the list of gifts is not a miraculous foretelling that authenticated God's message as in past times, right? Elijah was validated when it actually stopped raining, right? (laughs) I mean, he 
what he said actually came true. And even with Christ and, and some of the early chapters of Acts, there was, there was miraculous gifts. Those were authenticating gifts. But we should not think that that should be the norm at all. Now, he says here, according to the proportion of his faith, it's not objective truth of the gospel, but subjective in the sense of verse 3. Verse 3 and verse 6 are are somewhat similar here, right? To have that sober um, self-assessment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. And then he says prophecy according to the proportion of your faith. Proportion you might think of as according to the strength and fervor and other qualities of faith that have been bestowed on them. And this proportion of faith is is really where we get an analogy of faith, a a term that's in our confession, a term that the Reformers held to, which really simply is just comparing Scripture with Scripture. A commitment that we have to the proportion of one's faith. And then he says in verse 7, if service, and I'm going to come to that later, because if you look at the last half of verse 7, we have more speaking gifts. So he who teaches in his teaching. I want to make it clear, this is not just preaching on a Lord's Day service. This is the teaching of Sunday school classes, of which Joshua and Amalita teach our Sunday school and lead our youth. Uh, Leslie uh, taught a lady, the ladies at a, their, the ladies' brunch yesterday and was well received. So this teaching is not limited to only the Sunday ministry by the pastors in the local church. Teaching goes on on many different levels. Some connect teaching with exhortation, and, and that's good. Uh, one commentator says, These must always go together, for if teaching gives exhortation its content, exhortation gives teaching its force. You see how that's connected. And then he goes on to exhorting. It's parakaleho. It's the idea to call alongside, to give a word of exhortation. He who exhorts in his exhortation. This is very important in the life of the church. We need to be exhorted. We need to be exhorting and encouraging one another. You, it's, it, this, this word can mean a, a, a rebuke. It's, it's a very diverse word used many times in the New Testament. But most often it means encouragement, to call alongside. Remember Barnabas? He was called what? The son of encouragement, right? And Barnabas wasn't even his real name. It says in Acts 4 and verse 36, Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, who owned a tract of land and he sold it and he brought the money and laid it at the disciples' feet. How would people describe you? You know, we should all seek to be encouragers, to build one another up. To use Mark Chansky's book tagline, uh, encouragement is adrenaline for the soul. And to bring a word of encouragement can lift up somebody that's, that's discouraged and despairing and maybe focusing too much on the inside and too much on the negative things. A word of encouragement can lighten and brighten one's eyes and face.
And then Paul lists these serving gifts. So there's four listed here, going back to the the service here. He says uh, if, in verse 7, if service in his serving. So in proportion to the faith that's been given in your service as you're serving. Now, Now this is the word that you might be surprised about that actually means, um, like it's translated deacon as well, diakonos, which means servant, servant, service, the root word is where we get deacon from, and it's used in a diverse way throughout the New Testament. Ephesians 4.12, equipping the saints for the work of service. There it is, there. Meeting practical needs within the body. Um, Handing out bulletins. Working in the nursery. Helping with the hospitality Right? Oh, there's that and so many more. Helping with cleanup afterwards. Picking up the papers and trash and water bottles around you is, is just ways of serving. Everybody can serve in this way. And then uh, in the middle of verse 8, he who gives with liberality. Have you met it? Someone that actually has just a, such a giving heart. They, they want to bless others with their financial resources that they have. 25 years ago, there was a deacon in the church that I was at that had this gift. Uh, probably 75 years old, him and his wife, and just would hear of financial needs among Christians in the church and would meet them. Help build orphanages in Tijuana. In other words, they just gave away their wealth rather than trying to just cling to it as they knew they were close to going into glory. And sure enough, some years after I met them, three or four years, Margaret died, and then it was only six months later that her husband died. What a legacy, though. He who gives with liberality, right? Not, not, not with a miserly kind of thing of, of expecting some return. It's an open-handed, open-hearted giving of compassion for the glory of God. It can be financial. It can be the providing of other things, even the providing of time, giving of your time, meeting practical needs, generosity, liberality, single-mindedness, though, for the glory of God. There's even former members that have been members here and have moved on for various reasons that still give to support this local church. What an encouragement that is. And then he says, notice he says, he who leads with diligence, right? He who leads, exercising leadership, uh, charge, managing. It's a word that's used for managing his own household well, speaking of uh, elders in particular, but it goes beyond that. It goes beyond, it goes to to those that lead particular ministries, those that lead important and vital areas in the church. Taken together, it's the gift of leadership and administrating deeds done to the body of Christ. Certainly applies to elders, but it applies to anyone who has that lead. That's why here at Grace Bible Church, we encourage the members to consider, if, if the Lord puts a burden on your heart, you know, we, I'd love to see us have a ministry in this particular area, maybe to special needs children, something along those kinds of lines, and, and put together a proposal and come to the elders and get approval and then take the lead and you run with it. 
And those that have the gift of leadership, when they begin something, and the energy that's there, others follow. And it's a beautiful thing. And then he says to do this with diligence. And lastly here, he who shows mercy, um, he says, uh, showing mercy with cheerfulness, compassion and pity for those that are in need, and we do that with cheerfulness. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall, what? Receive mercy. We are all called to be merciful, but some have a special gift to go above and beyond what is normal. And mercy can be messy also, right? Visiting the sick and the needy. There's been several times, a few come to mind in particular, visiting those that have been afflicted with either old age nearing like 90 degrees, or cancer. And those, those deaths, just be a day or two before their death, there's, there's, a, there's an odor, there's a smell of death. Matthew worked with several hospice people. I'm sure you know the smell that I'm talking about. And it's a mercy and tending to their needs and praying with them and reading the hymns to them. It could be messy, but to do it with cheerfulness. We have a mercy ministry here at this church to provide meals for those in need. And Bernice and Abraham just had the baby, and so the church was able to provide some meals for them. And, and uh, you know, other manifestations of this is going and cleaning someone's house and babysitting. And these are things that even have happened recently in our church. A mercy ministry, and to do it cheerfully, right? Well, let's draw a couple concluding applications here. First, I've got to go back to it. Be careful not to think more highly of yourself than you ought. To have a, a sober self-assessment. Remember, these spiritual gifts that we have are given by the Holy Spirit. And it only comes to those who have received grace. And the purpose of spiritual gifts isn't to put your name on, to make your name well-known. It's to make God's name well-known, Right? It's to, to build up the body of Christ. And Paul's point here is don't fake your giftedness, right? That's, uh, you know, pretending to have more of a passion and courage in a certain area than what is real. That's putting on falsehood. One man said, don't fake the performance of some gift to, to look more spiritual than you are by using your gifts in true proportion to your faith. In other words, the issue And both verses is pride. The antidote to pride is faith. Yes, use your gifts to bless people. And yes, transmit grace to each other each day. And he gives a couple of examples. As your faith increases, the clarity of your vision of Christ increases. So using your gift in proportion to this faith will mean using it to show Christ with greater clarity. Secondly, as your faith increases, your treasuring of Christ's worth will increase. So using your gift in proportion to the faith will mean that there will be a greater passion for Christ's value. And as your faith increases, you trust more fully in Christ's promises to help you in using that gift, and it will mean greater confidence and boldness and courage. It's hard to step out and to serve in a particular way. You know, many of us are shy and 
And, and it's just easier to, to close up. But did you see how he's saying it's we have more of a passion for Christ and Christ's likeness that we will be given, this proportion of faith will grow so that we have courage to step out and to do what he has us to do. Our gifts are real and life-giving only as they come by faith. Each one has received a spiritual gift. How do you discover your spiritual gifts? We learned last week to take risk for the kingdom of God, living sacrifices unto God. So examine yourselves honestly. Ask others around you. Ask your elders. Ask the deacons. Sometimes gifts are discovered by just simply jumping in and serving somewhere. Just consider yourself walking into a room with 30 to 40 fellow church members and you're spending an extended amount of time with them. What is your natural inclination? Is your natural inclination to serve others? Is it to lead the group? Is it to want to show empathy to the one that's being neglected off to the side? Is it to to want to serve others? Is it one to have administrative and to be in the background? Those are the kinds of things you can ask yourself as you're trying to discover what God would have you do. And don't limit yourself by not having a right self-assessment. And if your attendance isn't consistent, you're going to have a hard time discovering what God wants you to do in his church, in the context of the church. And lastly, you can't serve God with God-given gifts if you're a foreigner to the grace of God. You have to come to know God. You have to be born again and be given that new heart that I spoke about earlier with new desires. And so you must repent of your sins and run to Jesus. Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one that comes to me I will in no wise cast out. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. Help each of us to be active and serving you and each other but also to have that sober self-assessment, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.